Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Kansas City Actors Radio Theater. I'm your host, Walter Coppage, and I'm thrilled to have you join us for the exciting conclusion of Bram Stoker's The Judge's House. Have you ever heard the wind go, you? Tis a pitiful sound to hear. It seems to chill you through and through with a strange and speechless fear. Tis the voice of the night that broods outside when folk should be asleep. And many, many's the time I've cried to the darkness brooding far and wide over the land and the deep. Whom do you want, O lonely night, that you wail the long hours through? And the night would say in its ghostly way, You, you, you. That was from a little poem by Eugene Field called The Night Wind. It's Halloween and the crisp autumn air is filled with the laughter of kids in costumes, the crinkle of candy wrappers, and of course that lurking, gnawing, creeping, crawling misgiving that someone, something awaits you right around the corner. Our presentation today is part two of The Judge's House, adapted in... Two parts for the radio by Matt Schwader from Bram Stoker's 1891 short story of the same name. The Judge's House is considered one of the best English ghost stories, so sit back, hold a dear one close, and enjoy a story especially catered for a season of ghosts. Now, part two of The Judge's House. When we last left our mathematics student, Malcolm Malcolmson, who had sought a quiet place to study for his examination, he had lighted on a sleepy market town where he had no acquaintances to distract him. He was able to lease a long, unoccupied, dilapidated old house, once inhabited by a mysterious judge. The judge's house... With an air of inscrutable mystery and fortified by a massive brick wall, afforded him something closer to desolation than mere solitude. But quiet was not in the contract. As a multitude of resident rodents became used to his presence, they relaxed into a state of persistent noise, racing and gnawing and scratching behind the walls, over the ceiling, under the floorboards. Some even venture from their holes. Bogies, as Malcolm's charwoman, Mrs. Dempster opines, are everything but actual bogies. Rats, mice, beetles, creaky floors, loose roof slates. Or are they... Having twice been tormented in the middle of the night by a rat with baleful eyes and several times the size of an ordinary rat, Malcolm is beginning to lose his sleep, and his studies, along with his mind, are waning. Good morning, young sir. Mr. Malcolmson, are you about? Who's oh, sir? 
Hey, where am I? I... Hello? Up to the wee hours with your studies again? Oh, oh yes, uh, yes, I... What is it? Miss Dempster? Uh, yes, yes, I... I must be going. I need some air. Miss Dempster! Right here, sir. Miss Dempster, when I'm out today, I, I, I wish that you would get the steps and, um... Dust the, uh, or wash those pictures, especially that one there, third from the fireplace. I want to see what it, what they are. Late in the afternoon, Malcolm worked at his books in a shaded walk, and the cheerfulness of the previous day came back to him, bit by bit, as the day wore on. He found that his reading was progressing well. He had worked out to a satisfactory conclusion a great problem which had yet baffled him, and it was in a state of jubilation that he paid a visit once more to Mrs. Witham, the kindly innkeeper at the Good Traveller, who had so lovingly helped him settle into town when he had first arrived. Malcolm! My dear Mrs. Witham, how do you do? I, oh, <laughs> you have a guest. I'm sorry for the intrusion. I... Oh, Malcolm, this is Dr. Wallace Thornhill. Dr. Thornhill, this is Mr. Malcolmson. He has recently taken residence in the house on the hill. My dear boy, you are quite welcome. Dr. Wallace Thornhill, pleased to meet you. Come, please, please, sit. Are you uh, settling in well? Our quaint little Ben Church hasn't seen an increase in population even by one person in quite a few years now. Is your stay a permanent one or seasonal? Have you, have you found the place conducive to your studies? Mrs. Witham here. Oh, <laughs> Dr. Thornhill, I am sure young Malcolm is not prepared for such ebullience so late in the afternoon. <laughs> Pleasure, Dr. Thornhill. I begin to suspect that your presence here is not an accident. Hmm. Sir, I shall with pleasure answer any question you may choose to ask me if you will answer me one question first. Uh, done. What is it? Did Mrs. Witham ask you to come here and see me and advise me? Oh. <laughs> she has already gone out of her way of my comfort on more than one occasion, and I dare say she's at it again. Well, uh, well. <clears throat> <laughs> she did. But she didn't intend you to know it. I suppose it was my clumsy haste that made you suspect. She told me that she did not like the idea of your being in that house all by yourself, and that she thought you took too much strong tea. In fact, she wants me to advise you, if possible, to give up the tea and the very late hours. I was a keen student in my time, so I suppose I may take the liberty of a college man and, without offence, advise you not quite as a stranger. Shake, as they say in America. I must thank you for your kindness, and Mrs. Witham, too. <laughs> I promise to take no more strong tea, no tea at all, till you let me. Oh, Malcolm. <laughs> and, and I shall go to bed tonight at one o'clock at the latest. Will that do? Capital. Now, tell us all that you have noticed in the old house. And so Malcolm then and there told in minute detail all that had happened in the last two nights. He was interrupted every now and then by some exclamation from Mrs. Witham. Oh! Dear heavens! I'm so sorry to cause you any distress at all. Oh, no. Please do continue. 
Well, again, I was called to my immediate surroundings suddenly, but this time it was not only the sudden silencing of the many smaller rats which took my attention. There was a slight movement of the rope. Oh. Without stirring, I, I looked to see if my pile of books was within range. It was in that moment that the great rat dropped from the rope on the oak armchair and sat there glaring at me. Oh! I raised a book and, taking careful aim, flung it at the rat. But it sprang to the side and dodged the missile. I then took another book and a third and flung them one after the other at the enormous rat, but each time unsuccessfully. At last, I stood with a book poised in my hand to throw. The rat squeaked and seemed afraid. Oh! Eager to strike, I hurled the book and struck the rat with a resounding blow. It gave a terrified squeak, turned on me with a look of terrible malevolence, and then ran up the chair back, made a great jump to the rope of the alarm bell, and ran up it like lightning. I kept my eyes on the monster and saw it leap to a molding of the wainscot and disappear through a hole in one of the great pictures which hangs on the wall, obscured by a thick coating of dirt and dust. Certain the beast had retreated for the time, I searched for the book that had successfully fetched him. When I found it, I quickly took it up and inspected it. A winter storm blew through my veins. It was the Bible my mother insisted I carry on my travels. What an odd coincidence, don't you think? Odd? Coincidence? Oh, I need a brandy. Oh. Just a little faintness is all. Uh, Stiff brandy and water to steady my knees. Yes. <laughs> the rat always went up the rope of the alarm bell? Always. Well, I suppose you know what that rope is. No. It is the very rope which the hangman used for all the victims of the judge's judicial rancor. <gasps> oh, oh. oh, my Oh, Mrs. Witham. Please, oh, please. Uh, perhaps we've said enough. Now, uh, uh, some more water, Do perhaps. Sit down again, Miss Witham. Oh, I'm all right, gentlemen, please. Oh, forgive me. Oh, please, my, my dear Mrs. Witham, I... No, my boy, quite all right. I'm quite all right. I just need my dinner and a little rest. Of course, of course. I should bother you no more with this talk, and uh, given the time, Mrs. Dempster will be quite short with me for, for allowing dinner to run cold. I, I call again tomorrow. Yes, dear. Run along. Dr. Thornhill? Mm, pleasure. I say, Dr. Thornhill, the young man has quite enough there already to upset him without your pressing upon him. My dear madam... I had a distinct purpose in it. I wanted to draw his attention to the bell rope and to fix it there. It may be that he is in a highly overwrought state and has been studying too much, although I, I am bound to say that he seems as sound and healthy a young man mentally and bodily as ever I saw. But then the rats and the suggestion of the devil. I would have offered to go and stay the night with him, but that I felt sure it would have been a cause of offence. He may get in the night some strange fright or hallucination, and if he does, I want him to pull that rope. 
All alone as he is, it will give us warning, and we may reach him in time to be of service. I shall be sitting up pretty late tonight, and I shall keep my ears open. Do not be alarmed if Ben Church gets a surprise before morning. Oh, Doctor, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean this, that possibly, uh, nay, more probably, we shall hear the great alarm bell from the judge's house tonight. When Malcolm arrived home, he found that it was a little after his usual time, and Mrs. Dempster had gone away. The evening was colder than might have been expected, and a heavy wind was blowing with every promise of a storm during the night. Ah, to see the place so bright and tidy with a cheerful fire and well-trimmed lamp. Miss Dempster, you are a saint. <clears throat> I'm beginning to become accustomed to their presence. So strange. I'm nearly glad to hear them. Greetings, my companions! Malcolm sat down to his dinner with a good appetite and then got steadily down to work, determined not to let anything disturb him. For an hour or so, he worked all right. And then his thoughts began to wander from his books. By this time, the wind had become a gale, and the gale a storm. The old house, solid though it was, seemed to shake to its foundation. Even the great alarm bell on the roof must have felt the force of the wind, for the rope rose and fell slightly, as though the bell were moved a little from time to time, and the limber rope fell on the oak floor. Huh. What was it that doctor said? It is the rope, it is the rope which the hangman used, used, the hangman used for the victims of the judge's of the judicial, judicial rancor. Let me have a close look at this old gibbet's ribbon. Hmm. Must be the bell above swaying in the wind that lifts it now and again. Grim. Just who were your victims, Judge? What kind of man would retain and employ such a ghastly relic in his own home? Presently there came a new sensation. A sort of tremor in the rope, as though something was moving along it. Looking up instinctively, Malcolm saw the great rat coming slowly down towards him, glaring at him steadily. He dropped the rope. Good God, you again. No, 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 don't you run away. Gone. The others, too, silent. Interesting. That's right. I've not yet investigated the lair of this monstrous rodent or the pictures. Third picture from the fireplace on the right. At the first glance, he started back so suddenly that he almost dropped the lamp, and a deadly pallor overspread his face. What is here? A judge, dressed in ermine and scarlet robes. Are you he? The judge? Seated in this same great high-backed carved oak chair on the right of this very great stone fireplace. Ah, and there in the corner, the rope, hanging down from the ceiling, its end coiled on the floor. My God, your face is merciless. Evil. Vindictive. 
His sharp, menacing nose and jawbones. And a wet, worming mouth. Did the painter capture your likeness while you lived? Your complexion is so like a cadaver. But those eyes... How peculiar. Brilliant, even. And with a terribly malignant expression. What exactly is it about that... <gasps> That's it! The very counterpart of the eyes of that horrible great rat! It was at that very moment the fine hairs on the back of Malcolm's neck began to rise. He carefully tilted his head to the side, expecting to find some strange presence behind him. There, in the actual judge's armchair, with the rope hanging behind, sat the rat with the judge's baleful eyes, intensified with a fiendish leer. This will not do. If I go on like this, I shall become a crazy fool. This must stop. I promised the doctor I would not take tea. Faith, he was right. My nerves must be getting into a queer state. However, it's, it's all right now. I shall not be such a fool again. I'll mix myself a good stiff glass of brandy and water. It was nearly an hour when he looked up from his book, disturbed by a sudden stillness. The fire had fallen low and had ceased to flame, though it threw out a red glow. Malcolm listened attentively. Creaking. Where's it coming from? corner of the room where the rope hangs down. Is it just the rope on the floor swaying from the old bell being thrown back and forth in the storm above? No. Even in this dim light, he's there. That great rat is clinging to the rope, gnawing on it, chewing, its sharp teeth tearing. Why, it's nearly gnawed entirely through. The monstrous rodent cut the rope completely with its razor teeth. It hung there like a knob or a tassel at the end of the severed rope, swaying. Now, the possibility of calling the outer world, should Malcolm be desperate for assistance, was cut off. Damn you! Don't you dart away into the shadows. Damn! No more books. I'll hunt you down, rat, and snap your thick neck in two. Malcolm seized the lamp from the table and tore away its shade. Ah, here! Now dare hide in the glow of this lamp! <gasps> the picture on the wall! It's... Malcolm rubbed his eyes in surprise, seeing right opposite to him the third picture on the wall from the right of the fireplace. Fear gripped him by the throat. In the center of the picture, a great irregular patch of empty brown canvas, as clean as when it was stretched on the frame. But the background remained. The chair, the chimney corner, the rope. But, but the figure of the judge, it, it has, he has disappeared. Behind me, he's there. I know it. I... I must steady my hands. I... Go. 
move. I, I, I thought is hardly done. Turn, Malcolm. <laughs> As Malcolm slowly pivoted around, there, on the great high-backed carved oak chair in the middle of the room, sat the judge in his robes of scarlet and ermine, with his baleful eyes glaring vindictively and a smile of triumph on the resolute, cruel <laughs> mouth. Malcolm's blood fell from his face. Slowly and deliberately, the judge rose from his chair and picked up the piece of rope of the alarm bell which lay on the floor, drew it through his hands as if he enjoyed its touch, and then deliberately began to knot one end of it, fashioning it into a noose. Pulling hard at it, satisfied, he raised it in the air and made to throw it in an effort to entangle Malcolm. Again and again, the judge raised the noose to ensnare him, ever keeping his baleful eyes fixed on him. Again and again, each time by a mighty effort, the student just managed to evade it. The judge, seeming never discouraged nor discomposed at failure, but playing as a cat does with a mouse. At last, in utter despair, Malcolm cast a glance entirely around the room, his head swimming in that suspension of time which strikes us all in the throes of catastrophe. He saw them the many rat holes in the chinks and crannies of the wainscot. Rats, eyes, thousands of tiny, oddly comforting eyes. Looking at me, my friends, why are you, so many of you, the remainder of the rope above, laden with rats, every inch covered with rats. And more and more pouring through the hole in the ceiling to the great bell. The weight is increasing on the bell. It's beginning... beginning to sway. The judge! His presence was paralyzing. Malcolm stood rigid as a corpse. The judge's icy fingers scraped his throat as he adjusted the rope, and the noose tightened, tightened. Then taking the stiff form of the student in his arms, the judge forced him, standing, into the oak chair. The rats fled as he reached upwards, catching the end of the swaying rope of the alarm bell. Taking the end of the noose which was round Malcolm's neck, he tied it to the hanging bell rope and then, descending, pulled away the chair. Alerted by the bell, a crowd soon assembled Malcolm. outside. Malcolm! Open the door! Lights and torches of various kinds appeared. Step aside. Step aside. Step aside. Step aside. Step aside. 
They knocked loudly at the door, but there was no reply. When they burst in the door and poured into the great dining room, the doctor at the head. They stood in silence. There, at the end of the rope of the great alarm bell, hung the body of the student. And on the face of the judge in the picture, a malignant smile. So ends The Judge's House by Bram Stoker, adapted for the radio by Matt Schwader. This episode was brought to you by Kansas City Actors Radio Theater with sound design by Thomas Newby. It starred Matt Schwader as Malcolm Malcolmson and featured Cinnamon Schultz as Mrs. Witham, Shauna Pena Downing as Ms. Dempster, Brian Paulette as Dr. Thornhill, Hilary Clemens as the narrator, and Victor Rader Wexler as the judge. This episode was directed by Matt Schwader with sound and music by Gianna Agostino and Thomas Newby. And I'm your host, Walter Coppage. Kansas City Actors Radio Theater is a subdivision of Kansas City Actors Theater, commonly called KCAT. KCAT was founded in 2004 to keep professional actors in Kansas City with a mission to produce thought-provoking classic and contemporary classic plays, and even occasionally sprinkling in some original works of our own. Kansas City Actors Theater continues to nurture our local artistic community by employing the finest talents of Kansas City's diverse theater body which in turn makes Kansas City a more vibrant place to live and to work. In fact, KCAT recently concluded our live stage production for children, compiled and written by Mark Edelman, which was developed specifically as a world premiere in honor of the Auschwitz exhibit, not long ago, not far away, at Union Station. Our next stage production, The Pests, adapted by Kansas City's esteemed scholar, Felicia Landre from Moliere's play La Show arrives on City Stage in January 2022. The Pess, directed by Matt Schwader, is part of Casey Moliere 400 in 2022, a citywide celebration of Moliere's 400th birthday. Our program sponsors are the Estelle S. and Robert A. Long Ellis Foundation, Arts KC, the Missouri Arts Council, the National Endowment for the Arts, Theater League, and the Bridenthal Snyder Foundation. And a special thanks to Mark and Valerie Andrus. Kansas City Actors Radio Theater is made possible with support from listeners like you. For more information about supporting Kansas City Actors Theater, please visit kcactors.org backslash donate.